0: Hi there, you're listening to the a Tech Talk Show. We've got a special Tech Talk Show today, so we haven't got any studio guests. We've got our roving reporter, Steve Griffiths, who visited Innovate UK NEC Birmingham the other week and um, met some incredible innovative new companies there. We've got um, Zelta Shelter, MTech, Dynamon, Zinergy, EcoGo, Galiseum and SOME trailers. So quite an interesting mix. So Steve's going to have a chat with those and um, I'll come back to you when that's finished.
1: So um, we've come down to uh, the NEC today to look at Innovate 2017, which is um, a government-sponsored uh, show, but there is some fantastic technology on display here. Uh, everything from robotics to virtual reality, but also some great engineering so um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to spending some time going around speaking to people and actually um, finding out what trends and uh, what they also feel about prospects for the future. Um, you yeah, know, The UK is facing a lot of uncertainty at the moment around trade and other issues and uh, I'd be interested to know what, uh, what the exhibitors and the uh, innovators feel about that. So I'm now on the stand of Zelter Shelter, and I'm joined by Lee Price. Hi, Lee. How are you doing?
2: Hi, Steve. I'm good. It's awesome here.
1: <laughs> I mean, um, we're looking at your display, and you've got a fantastically bright, quite technical,
2: I think, uh, shelter. Tell us a little bit about it. Indeed. Uh, Zelter Shelter is a wearable personal shelter. Uh, it's inflatable, so you don't need any poles or ropes. Um, it just supports itself. It's, it's, what is it? It's different. Is it not a tent? Is it not a poncho it's 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 a zelter it's a name i come up with right um yeah basically this is it it's it's done on the back of my personal background experience doing extreme camping in western canada in the rainforests and by the rivers um so i've come back years later as a as an industrial designer and used you know my design might and uh, i guess technological solutions for the stuff i faced back in the day uh so now we've got this this awesome garment that you can wear uh, and turn into a tent if you want or just use a tent or just wear it it's a new thing
1: so it's uh, triangular in shape and it's uh, almost pyramidal in terms of its shape for a shelter um, it's probably about
2: two meters long by about a meter wide yeah, two and a half meters long I'm six foot four and it fits me just comfortably there's enough room for everything yeah it looks extremely lightweight yeah it is just over a kilo
1: and so uh, you wear it as a poncho or some form of wearable jacket
2: yeah, the nice, it's, it's a flat pattern that's just elegant. It'll, it'll fit over you like a poncho and hook around you and it fit anybody's kind of size or shape. Um, and then you can, you can unhook it and the same pattern will enclose you like a nice little triangular tent. It's a, it's a sturdy, nice little form and, and I'm pretty happy with it.
1: So um, the fabric is, uh, feels like a nylon polypropylene type thing.
2: You might be right. <laughs> okay, well, that's the secret, is yeah, it? It's an, it's an absolutely waterproof material. It's a light nylon. It's also breathable. So if you spend the night in one, you're not going to be covered in condensation and sweat and breath. Yeah,
1: which is the normal work problem with a, with a cheap tent.
2: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so it's uh, it, it, we've i found the right people to make it. They, they make rescue gear for the Navy, airlines. It's, this is a top quality product. Everything, seam seals. Uh, it's, it's, it's excellent. It's done to a really high level. It's more expensive than a cheap tent and cheaper than an expensive raincoat, I guess. You get all this nice utility and, and yeah. the technology is there to, to protect yeah. you.
1: So tell us a, a little bit about the idea in terms of what, first of all, prompted you to use inflation. Is that something that you went to straight away or is it... You know the 5th, 10th, 20th iteration
2: Oh no, not the 20th okay. No, early on I started drawing the concepts and thinking about how I'd make it and I had this kind of shape done with poles and little archways and stuff and I thought, hmm, you got to wear it where do you put them, where do you take it apart you thread it around, people, no, inflatable flat, textile, fold, soft that's it, so then I went and, and hacked the parts, I hacked a place that uh, they make, I guess, folding kayaks inflatable boats, and I, yeah. I got some bladders made up to spec there uh, and then the, the, rest is, the rest is history really, it just combined a few bits of technology that would be otherwise different. I did a, the original idea came many years ago to be honest, I have sat on it, it stayed over time and, and remained a good idea and I've just started more recently developing it, so this is, this is how I got here.
1: I mean um, the, the bladders, uh, they look like they just slide into pockets, is that correct?
2: So far, right now, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. And how how does the, does the wearer inflate the bladder? Are you just blowing up by mouth, or
2: it's a little screw lock valve. So you blow up by valve, uh, by mouth. Yeah, yeah. Just blow into the tube. It's the same. Uh, it's the same inflation stem that you see on every life jacket. Whenever you get an airplane, like yeah, yeah.
1: It? Just yeah, quite simple. Yeah.
2: yeah, grab the red thing to top up. Says the pretty guy. <laughs> yeah, that's right.
1: I mean, um, big market. You're, you're aiming at a huge. Is it? more adventure or is it a hugely vast market different sectors really
2: yeah outdoor recreation is a huge market and you know to capture a little bit of that that would be great i, I think there's three kind of main users for my thing i'd say it's the people into the outdoor recreation folks out there camping hunting wild camping fishing bushcraft or you know just out for fun right also I mean, professionals who might have their job that takes them outdoors Keep one of the Land Rover. They may, may work for utilities or mining or exploration or NGOs, you know, responders and stuff. Um, or also too, just safety and preparedness use. So folks that might have an emergency kit, getting ready, uh, maybe keep one in the car. Road safety, you know, that kind of thing. Um, also, you know, when it's when it's done right for a charity, where appropriate, you know, you could have things that uh, that would distribute these in bulk. Um, you know, it's just, just it's kind of made for everybody, but uh, but not, you know, it'll it'll fit any person. So
1: um, obviously it's your company uh, you're taking it forward what's been the hardest element of of taking your design and actually making it a reality what's been the, the, the most difficult
2: uh, let's see here um, I'd call this a labor of love I'm the most DIY person here probably in the whole NEC um, because yeah i I'm just a regular guy with a job and a family and stuff so this is kind of being done in my spare time a little bit so um, finding time to focus on it i'm self-supporting it so the ip paying for all that stuff is is a bit difficult but i um, i've brought it to this level kind of in my attic really late at night when when the kids are asleep sort of thing so that's that struggle that's the time involved because i can't focus intensively on that time so we'll we'll see how that comes but uh yeah i'm getting to meet the right people and i kind of know how it's done my day job is in design as well so i can kind of use the, that experience to push this forward too it's my hobby
1: I mean, we see lots of uh, innovators doing that. They're bootstrapping their ideas in terms of funding it themselves. But it gets to a point where there's almost like a critical mass, isn't there? Where you can no longer do two jobs, you've got to focus on one
2: yes but uh, yeah we'll see I mean uh, the way this I'd like to sell is probably through distributors as a bit of a, a thing that I can, can do that it's, it's a little bit beyond my means to go and buy 10,000 of them and then flog them and handle returns and, and, and all that so it's something I'd like to kind of tick over in the background for a while because uh, you know I can, I can do this while other folks are out there watching TV or surfing the internet you know I'm not, I'm not watching Coronation Street you know I'm, I'm here painting. Yeah, yeah absolutely so you're not going to stop me it'll be painting or something else
1: And I assume one of the most crucial bits of your business model is protecting your idea?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm here publicly disclosing all my awesomeness. Um, (laughs) It's brutal. It's the PR. No, but yeah, it is. It's uh, because, you know, I've paid for all the IP myself. You know, it's... uh, you, you, that's a so whack. You take it seriously when you're when you're doing that, but it's what you have to do because again, if I'm making things abroad, if I want to sell it abroad, you need patents in place, you need trademarks or you know registered designs. So I've I've gone out and done all that stuff, and now uh, man, I'm on a mission to recoup it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's no exactly back. right. Yeah, no way back, man. I got kids to feed.
1: <laughs> yeah, wife to feed, kids to feed, and everything else. Yeah. I mean, it is. I mean, I'm looking at the folded item. I mean it's really compact it's the size of a very very small tent it would just fit nicely in a backpack or anything like it's it's almost like a ground mat really isn't it
2: yeah yeah it is it's like a small tarp you know if I fit a couple in my pack in addition to being a you know on you or as a tent you can spread it out and use it like a tarp it's got all the grommets and tie down points for everything so people you know you might have it as a tarp over top of your poncho for instance or I should say your hammock so it's this nice piece of utility again I've kind of been there done that in the outdoors uh, and I've come up with this kind of interesting form that's, that's multi shapable And, yeah, you, it is unique. It's absolutely unique. You need to check it out. www.zeltershelter.com So give me that again. Zeltershelter.com Zelter Shelter. It's the only one that shows up on any of these searches. Yeah. yeah.
1: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for spending the time to talk to us. Really enjoyed it. Cheers.
2: You don't have to end the interview because I said my website, zeltershelter.com.
1: <laughs> we'll end it now, though, shall we? <laughs> <Perfect>. <laughs> Cheers, mate. Thank Just you. Bye. So we've moved over to uh, speak to Graham Cox at Mtech. Now Graham, um, we're looking at virtual reality glasses and wearables here. Tell us a little bit about the things you're producing and innovating.:
3: Absolutely. Um, so Mtech is building uh, facial wearables, glasses that read your expression and emotion from directly from your face. So reading the wearer's emotional state. Our uh, primary use cases are in health and well-being. Um, uh, but we're also delivering our system to researchers, that's both academic and market researchers, who are using it to gather emotional response data to, uh, to, to stimuli. So imagine, <coughs> uh, imagine uh, Disney uh, putting somebody around their theme parks, uh, gaining information about what actually grabs people's attention, where people get interested, what gives a positive reaction, what actually turns people off.
1: So um, are you joining up facial recognition and other features? Because obviously the, the wearables we see are normally are, are about looking out, not looking in. So you're joining various bits of technology up, is that right?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So we have, um, we, we, we have uh, integration with a bunch of other sensors in order to gather environmental information. Really interesting use case for that is uh, our implementation into VR headsets. Uh, because in virtual reality, obviously, the uh, you can control everything about the experience, and so the understanding of the emotional response you get is really important in, uh, and really uh, provides very clear information about what the uh, what the what the person is uh, is responding to, what they uh, the context of what they're dealing with.
1: So, um, you talked about the research, and I can understand how researchers would want to know. How people are responding to stimuli to either look at the effectiveness or look at a reaction. How else do you see it being used? Perhaps give me a few more examples.
3: Yeah, well, actually, our first product that is coming out next year is a treatment system for facial paralysis, facial palsy. Um, So uh, when when you get a facial paralysis it tends to only affect one side of the face and so our glasses are measuring the asymmetry, the difference in the quantity and direction of movement in one side of the face compared to the other and we have an app on your mobile phone which gamifies the process of rehabilitation, of retraining your face to express in a symmetric manner. We're also with Innovate UK, uh, it's a live project at the moment, working with some uh, experts around the world to build a, uh, a treatment system into glasses that monitors the symptom levels of Parkinson's disease. Uh, and that is expression, uh, gait, and posture, and also uh, voice, tone, and volume. Our long term goal is to build a wearable pair of glasses that looks like an ordinary pair of glasses that monitors your mood across the day and provides information about the triggers that, that, that drive changes in your mood that will have direct and immediate benefit to people suffering from, uh, uh, who are bipolar or suffer other mood disorders, but might actually provide really important information to all of us about what the stressors in, are in our life, what brings us up, what takes us down and gives us actionable information that we can use
1: to manage that. I mean, mine normally happens when I'm looking at my bank account on my phone or internet banking or something like that. But I mean, do you have a medical background? Is that what's prompted you to look at those fields? or
3: Uh, I I don't have a medical background I've been working in artificial intelligence and machine learning for 25 years now so uh, the last couple of years has been quite entertaining in seeing it suddenly uh, be recognised as the world changer that that I've always believed it to be but my business partner Charles Naduka is a facial surgeon uh, and he literally takes faces apart and puts them back together again for a living and provides that front end expertise that, uh, that has allowed us to put the hardware and the AI together to deliver what we have
1: and do you think, um, we see lots of tech on the show and it's, it is fantastic where some of the VR and AR is going, but the market is just so massive, it's almost trying to bring it in to, to focus on an aerial, first of all, before you move on to other perhaps applications. Uh, have you taken a conscious decision to do that?
3: Absolutely. So, uh, ultimately vr will find um, significant use cases in industry and also in consumer use augmented reality will become ultimately one of the biggest things in technology in the world around us and my belief is that the smartphone eventually will migrate onto our faces uh, however that's not going to happen for a few years yet vr is currently in a little bit of a trough um, what that is exactly as you said that is why we're focused on direct single use case applications of the glasses with really hard, obvious markets and benefits to the wearers. So the medical use cases and our research use cases provide us with a way to commercialize our technology, uh, de- deliver revenue, build our capabilities and uh, wait for the augmented reality wave to hit in a few years time. I mean,
1: it's amazing technology. It really is. And, and it, it will only get um, more miniaturized as, as things go on. Yeah?
3: Uh, yes absolutely we're still early stage so the company's been going two years. Uh, we've been funded by the excellent support from organizations like innovate UK and also the National Institute of Health Research and from uh, founder funds to date We are uh, ha- we have delivered a-, a raft of patents prototype systems that demonstrate the- demonstrated in action we have a clear route to productization next year. But it's going to take some more money from where we are in order to really commercialise and hit the market that we know we can, and um, I'm raising money at the moment. Are
1: you? So you're going through a crowdfunding or some other mechanism?
3: Uh, I'm raising a seed round, uh, and we're looking. Uh, we, we are EIS applicable, and I'm looking at a mixture of high net worths and funds to fill that round um, in the next three months.
1: I wish you all the best with that I mean again a lot of people that come on the show they're they're at a classic stage like yourself they're at that sort of two year they've got got their idea protected they've got it developed they've got it protected they've got it in some form of prototype and it's actually getting it to the next phase um, which quite clearly you seem to be focusing very much on and and you've got a clear market as well
3: yeah I think it's crucially important not to try and change the world on version one uh, and having a defined market in our medical and health space gives us a place that we can start where we will be delivering units in the hundreds uh, in the first few months of operation and scaling that up, taking that out to the North American market and looking at our longer term products which have a mass market opportunity which will come out in later years. And I think that's the only way to deliver this kind of technology.
1: Graham, thank you very much for talking to us. I mean, it's been great to hear about UK based technology and innovation and in a very important field as well. So, thank you for that. Um, we always finish. Uh, where can people get more inf- information about your funding round and also your company?
3: Um, well, th- please come to our website that is mtech.net. That's E M T E Q dot net. Uh, there is a contact form on the website. Please do get in touch.
1: Thank you ever so much. Thanks for joining us. So, I'm now talking to Angus from Dynamon. Now, uh, efficiency in logistical movement is really important, isn't it, for companies? Not just to make their logistical product cheaper, but actually about environmental protection as well, isn't
4: it?
5: Uh, Yes, that's correct. Um, Logistics is one of the most important industries in uh, the country. Everything we buy uh, moves on a truck, and therefore the cost and environmental impact of of everything that we're buying is affected by the efficiency of logistics. Uh, We rely very heavily on road haulage in the UK and throughout Europe for moving goods uh, around the country. And um, logistics companies are actually uh, not very well trained around the complexities of running an efficient fleet they typically focus on uh, improving reliability and being on time. And so what we're doing is we're helping the industry really drill down into the performance of their vehicles and identifying efficiency improvements.
1: So tell me a little about, we're we're looking at a screen which has got uh, a picture of the UK and uh, the main road networks showing different colours. So I assume the more denser and higher uh, traffic areas are shown in the redder colours, is that right?
5: So we've collected over... Uh, 100 million miles of data to measure the performance of the logistics companies that we're working with and um, the red areas are where most of their movements are occurring and you can see that the bluer areas is where they're spending less of their time but they go out to these fringes as well um, the solutions the efficiency solutions uh, for uh, um, logistics companies varies depending on how they use their, v- their vehicles so this map demonstrates that we have to provide solutions for companies with a vast range of operations so if you're a supermarket chain going from a to b between uh, warehouses it might be quite a a specific vehicle use case so then we can optimize that vehicle very to a very exact nature we might be improving the aerodynamics of that vehicle uh, enabling them to buy the the perfect set of tires to minimize costs uh, and then also for them to tune the weight of the vehicle they could buy a lightweight trailer for example which will reduce the uh, fuel consumed when that vehicle is driving up and down hills and also the the fuel consumed due to the tires.
1: Because we do see a lot of logistical fleets tend to just rely on one one particular vehicle with a trailer regardless of whether it's multi drop uh, warehouse to warehouse or warehouse to uh, end point of sort of point of sale. And and what you're doing is suggesting that actually by collecting more data, they can tailor things in a little bit more efficient way. That's
5: correct. We want to help the industry tailor and optimise their vehicles. Um, They they currently... Uh, they're experts in buying vehicles and running vehicles reliably. We're experts in efficiency and the physics of what's going on. And by combining that with the data that they already have for, the, for their vehicles, that's telematics data, we can then provide very specific recommendations automatically on our online dashboard as to what they can do to save, to save fuel. And it's very it's very targeted. It's literally, if you do this specific thing to your vehicle, you will save this amount of fuel uh, and this amount of carbon dioxide emissions per year. And that's really important to companies um, that are operating on tiny margins. And so the reason we're targeting this industry is because we can help them uh, reduce their costs, but also improve their profit margins and, um, and reduce the impact they have on their, their environment.
1: So talking about the technology, obviously uh, the first thing is to record the data, I assume you've got some form of black box type device that is fixed into the vehicle or are you using existing uh, outputs from the vehicle?
5: So we don't put any physical black box in the vehicle. We um, Luckily, most t- um, logistics companies uh, collect the data already. So they've, they've got this data, they're just not fully utilising it. So we can connect to that. We've spent um, put quite a lot of effort into developing software to collect to connect to a number of data platforms. And we suck all this data into our central an, uh, analysis platform and um, we feed that back. Uh, to the logistics companies in a way that is very intuitive um, so so it's very easy for them to make decisions around uh, optimizing their fleet.
1: So um, we talk a little bit about on the on the screen we've got a section around uh, aerodynamics so explain to me how you would take the raw data and know that improvements in aerodynamics would help a particular route or a particular vehicle.
5: Well, if we look here on this dashboard, you can see that for the, the fleet of vehicles that we're looking at, there's 126 vehicles in this in this fleet. Their fuel bill is five million pounds per year, uh, but we can break that number down, and aerodynamic drag accounts for 26% of their fuel bill, and that's about 1.3 million pounds per year. So. For their, uh, their vehicles, we can then identify, well, are the vehicles able to be more aerodynamic? And uh, the answer is yes. And, and therefore, we recommend specific aerodynamic improvements that they can um, add to their vehicles. And that, uh, that can be up to... Um, an annual fuel saving of over a thousand pounds per vehicle per year and for a fleet of 126 vehicles that will last five years that scales up to be quite a significant fuel uh, cost saving and fuel saving over the life of the fleet.
4: I mean
1: you're talking there five million just a one percent decrease in fuel bill or improvement in efficiency that's going to make a massive difference.
5: Yeah, that's correct. And this is only for a fleet of 126 vehicles. So that would be any successful regional haulier would have a fleet that size. But if we talk about some of the big players in the industry, the likes of um, Wincanton, who have over 3,000 vehicles, their fuel bill is probably in the order of uh, £300,000 per day. So over 2 million a week. So... When we scale this up to the big uh, logistics companies, the cost savings and the CO2 savings can be, well, will be enormous.
1: So, one of the areas is about moving weight uphill. Tell me a little bit about that. What, how does that work?
5: So, most of the um, the work around weight optimization on uh, trucks has been around. Um, getting more cargo on board so logistics uh, uh, heavy goods vehicles are limited by the maximum weight that they can um, move on the road to protect the road and and therefore they some companies try and get the weight down so that they can put more cargo on board the vehicle which is a good thing but there are, there are other companies that don't um, need to reduce the weight of the vehicle because the cargo they're moving is quite lightweight so most supermarkets are not uh, hitting the weight limit but what we've identified here is that weight has a significant impact on fuel cost, something that they've not, they've not made that connection. No. And so, so weight will affect, um, when you're driving uphill, you have to move all that weight up the hill. And if you're moving more weight uphill than you need to, you're spending more money on fuel, you're emitting more carbon dioxide. And that is the same as when you're, um, when you're accelerating the vehicle basic physics tells you that to accelerate you need to at the force required to accelerate is is due to the weight of the of the vehicle if you can reduce the weight you get money off the um, the uphill part you get money off the acceleration part and you also get money off um, the energy lost in your tires as well
1: so the so the technology that sits behind this is obviously about the analysis of the data so you bring that in and actually it's then the skill is also in giving needy lifetime prompts to the companies to you know, help them understand how to optimise things. Is that right?
5: Yes. This What we're providing is completely unique. The industry has not seen a, a dashboard or a software solution that provides such targeted information for them to, to improve efficiency. The philosophy that we use is we don't want them to really have to think about this. It's very simple. It's do this and you will improve your fleet by, by this much. And um, it will save you this much money and save you this much CO2 emissions per year. So we want to make it as easy as possible. So we don't just analyze the data. Um, we also display the data in a very intuitive manner.
1: I must admit, it's extremely clear, uh, very concise. You can see everything you probably need to on one dashboard, which is um, takes some designing, I must say. Yeah. Um, Angus, it's been great to speak to you. Where can people get more information about your design and the,
4: the product
5: You can have a look on our website, it's www.dynamon.co.uk and um, we have some information on there but the best thing to do is to get in touch with us directly and we can set up a free trial and you can see, if you're a fleet, you can see what potential savings you can make And, um, and then you will really understand the benefit to you.
1: Thank you so much for taking the time to describe it, it's great. Thank you very much. So we're now going to talk about all things battery. I'm, I'm with Pratesh from Zynergy, and we're on the Innovate UK area. Um, how important has Innovate UK been to you in helping you bring your, your design forward?
6: Uh, very helpful, actually. So we, we started off designing these this thin printed batteries, um, and just about six months ago, we got a grant from Innovate UK um, to develop supercapacitors in, in the same form factor and integrate that with a, with a medical device company.
1: So um, we've got, if we could describe what we've got, it's, it's probably about uh, 30 millimetres by about 40 millimetres, an extremely thin battery.
6: Yes, so it's, it's uh, about 0.3 millimetres thick um, and it's, it's a battery that's printed. So essentially what we've done is we take an alkaline battery like a standard Duracell or, or whatnot and we formulate each of the components onto onto a screen printable link we then just take it into a screen printing press like where you would print your logo of a t-shirt for instance and uh, and print each of the components of a battery and get and get this and um, what sort of
1: battery is it? What what's the two different components?
6: Uh, so it's a zinc manganese oxide okay. so it's, it's an alkaline battery essentially yeah,
1: yeah. and what's the main market are you focusing on with those
6: so principally there's two things that we're looking on at the moment one of them is uh, medical patches so say you were to stick on a label on yourself that measures your glucose level or or whatever condition you may have Um, the electronics is now developing to the point where it's becoming thin and flexible um, and this is the, the power source to go with that. So, so
1: that would that would form part of the patch or could be separate or integrated within it?
6: Exactly it would be, just be integrated within the patch so you yeah. just have a thin label that you stick on and it does the measurement and transmission
1: So how, how long has that been in design, that particular
6: So we've been, as a company we've been going for about uh, 18 months but there's a there's a bit of a mishmash of previous experience so i i worked in nokia for a little while um, where we were developing something very similar for a phone application I worked on some of these energy storage technologies during my PhD as well so it's sort of a mishmash of things coming together
1: So a couple of things come to mind one is um, how does heat affect that so you've got body heat or other things does that reduce the output or, or contribute to a better performance?
6: Uh, it contributes to, to reducing the internal resistance of the battery so it doesn't doesn't affect it at all yeah.
1: And um, how, how long will that last in terms of its uh, duration?
6: It's capacity yeah so so remember e- this is a printed technology so you can make it any size or shape that you like um, and each square centimeter gives you about two and a half million power at the moment yeah. um, and to put that into perspective say if you were if you're running a, a temperature sensing patch uh, that you stick on your skin um, which was measuring your body temperature every minute or something and sending that on a Bluetooth signal to your phone, this would last for about two or three days on one of these batteries.
1: Two or three days? Yeah. That is amazing.
6: In, in terms of capacity, actually, it's, it's, not a, it's not a revolutionary bit in terms of capacity. So the fundamental chemistry is, is pretty much the same as an alkaline battery. It's more the form factor and the flexibility that, yeah. comes, that comes...
1: And, and also, the, the, I assume it's relatively cheap to produce if it's using pretty standard printing.
6: Exactly, exactly. It's produced in a printing press, can be made roll to roll, so actually each of these is meant to cost a few pennies. Yeah. Um, in fact, the the largest application that we're looking at is to go on to things like food packaging to measure freshness of food, for example, to measure temperature, um, and that Require sort of hundreds of millions of units but it has to cost pretty much nothing
1: I mean that is but even if that is just a few pence um, if you had high quality or high cost food uh, that needed to be at a particular temperature constantly that would that you know that would be viable wouldn't it
6: exactly exactly and we're already working with someone in the pharma industry for for precisely that reason
1: And not just that. Obviously, I think you've got drug uh, drugs have to be sometimes kept or recorded at a set temperature. So that there's another market there as well.
6: Exactly right. Exactly yeah. right. And that's that's exactly where we started working at the moment.
1: And how hard has it been, uh, you know, um, to take your idea and convert it into a commercially viable and, and just all of the stuff around setting up company, obtaining grants, managing that process, you know. It's hard, yeah.
6: <laughs> way harder than I imagined. So when it started off, we thought by this by this time we'd be selling millions already and we'd have a plant running. Um, it's taken a bit more effort than we thought for sure. But but having said that, if you look back from a year ago, we've definitely come a long way.
1: Yeah, I mean it's a great product, and actually um, I haven't seen many. There's there's not many others like that around.
6: There's this two or three companies dotted around the planet trying to do the same thing. Uh, we like to believe we're as far as I know, we're the thinnest battery in the world. Um, we like to believe that we're doing it better or cheaper, but that remains to be seen.
1: Well, I wish you all the best for the future. Uh, tell us where you can get more information on your product from.
6: Uh, you can take a look at our website www.synergy-power.com com. Uh, or contact us anytime
1: great to speak to you thank you ever so much for um talking about your innovation uh it's been great to to hear what you're doing thank you ever so much so i'm at a great display here with pablo from ecogo pablo could you just explain we've we've got a moving wheel in a, in a box with some electronics what what actually is it
7: Hi Steve, it's an actual flux motor. Now most electric motors are based on radial flux design and when I I talk about radial flux design it's really the flux field that's generated between the electric coils and the permanent magnets. So in actual flux design we flip them by 90 degrees.
1: So a normal electric motor works by a magnetic field switching on and off, turns the the central rotor around. So what's different to Explain exactly what's different with yours.
7: Yeah, well, what di- what's different to ours is really where, the way we've got the, the magnets mounted on the side, because that then means that compared to traditional radial flux motors, we can start building the motor right from the inner diameter going outwards. On the radial flux machine, you'd be going from the outer diameter inside. You are then limited to how far you can go, and you end up with a very large void which isn't actually doing anything like that. So in applications where our motor is more uh, useful is typically when the ratio of length of the motor to the diameter is greater than one to two, because then then you can start building very, very compact motors. So these two motors I've got here, they both come out of electric golf trolleys. This one is a radial flux motor. That's our actual flux motor. Our actual flux motor, you can't hear, but you can see is a lot smaller. Now, it's the same, same sort of output, and it's a lot smaller because we can start building right from the outside. So this radial flux motor here is about 80% air and 20% motor. In our motor, it's 20% air and 80% motor.
1: So um, we've got two motors in front of us. One is probably about 200 millimeters diameter, and the one from uh, EcoGo is at least mm, 40% smaller, I'd say.
7: Yes, yeah, yep. that's fair. And
1: the um, the the sort of standard motor we're looking at the the a lot larger. Most of the internal spokes of the the rotor are actually just air. It's all it is is supporting a ring of of uh, magnets, electromagnets, which are switched on and off. So, uh, yeah, I can see what you've done and and how it's brought the size of the the motor down. So, tell us some of the applications where you're looking to um, deploy your technology.
7: Yeah, the applications are personal mobility applications, typically ones that are low speed, high torque, uh, and because we're looking at batteries, you always need very efficient motors. So mm-hmm. that's another advantage we've got compared to radial flux motors. If I just uh, talk about the, the coils here for a moment, yeah. they are wound using a, a needle wind machine. So the needle's got to be go in and out past the coil to wind the copper. So you then end up with large gaps in between the individual poles. Yeah because the needle has to go through so as a result your fill factor is only about 40%. Now if i just get uh, my my little coil out. So just
1: to describe that basically what we've got is a complete ring of a number of uh, uh, wound elements of the rotor and they've got a copper wire which is round wound around each one and there must be probably upwards of 30 to 40 of them uh, positioned around the outside of the rotor ring. We're now going to look at the ones that are in the Eco um, EcoGo motor.
7: Yeah, so we've, we've got these and they're wound off the motor. It means that we get a fill factor of about 80 to 90 percent because all the available space is wound with copper wire. So then when you come to assemble the motor all available space has been used for your wire and typically the losses are generated in the winding so because we've got more wire in there, thicker wire, the resistance is a lot lower so compared to a traditional radial flux design the efficiency savings are around the 25% mark.
1: So not only is the you've got about 40% saving on size you've got another efficiency which is about 20%
7: efficiency improvement. Yeah electrically yes yeah so it means you can you can have uh, smaller batteries or you get a a greater distance. from And um, because we
1: I think the thing is we hear a lot about improving battery technology to make things last longer or be more efficient but actually it's the draw on the battery that is another area of
7: focus yeah? Yes yeah so with, with our sort of technology you're getting a massive improvement really 25% whereas in current battery technologies so I think the next sort of 5 to 10 years you're looking at you know you'd be lucky to get a 10% improvement. Yeah,
1: that's great so um, how long you've been designing uh, the actual product and, and how far are you on that journey?
7: Yeah well it's, it's actually been almost 10 years I mean we started off our background is really electric golf trolleys And uh, we, we used to sell them into Europe and we were approached by a German company, said, we've got these lovely motors. Would they be of any use to you? And we thought, yes, great. We can make a really nice golf trolley, smaller battery, quiet low maintenance, no issues. So we worked with this German company for a couple of years and then all of a sudden we realized, or it took a little while, uh, that they were never going to deliver. By that time, we were that far down the road that we just uh, sort of decided that we had to continue and we worked with a couple of English companies and eventually ended up with our own little design. That's absolutely perfect.
1: So is it now in production?
7: Yes, we're in production with electric golf trolleys. Uh, so there's several hundred of them out there but we've also realized that since all our efforts really gone into the electric motor side of it the frame hasn't been updated and really we're better off just focusing on the electric motor side because we've got a niche that's not nobody else is doing this at the moment you can get bigger versions of this but they won't scale down that's brilliant
1: well it's great to look and and discuss your technology thank you ever so much um yeah please let us know yeah one tell us a little bit more and then tell us where we can find more details
7: yeah uh the one thing i haven't mentioned is uh, the construction of of the radial flux machine typically uses steel laminations so you've got tooling there that's very expensive mm. you've got a lead time of four to six months yeah. and then when you come to order the the parts you've got to order hundreds of thousands you can't just get 500 uh, parts made of this yeah. Ours, the 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 main parts are just turned, uh, turned components. So we're quite happy to do uh, projects where we only got an annual volume order volume of about 500 or so. 500, 5,000 can all be the same.
1: No, I mean I should make the. To make a standard motor, the tooling is actually probably very, very expensive. You've either got pressed plate, which needs either dies or, or yeah. things mate.
7: Yeah, that's right. And if you, if you, then you've got the lead time for the tooling. So lead time for the tooling loan would be sort of four to six months. In that equivalent time, we could actually build a controller and have a finished product for the customer.
1: Oh, that's great. Um, tell us where we can get more information.
7: Yeah, if you go to our website, co.
1: Brilliant. Great to speak to you, Pablo, and thanks ever so much for describing what you're doing. So uh, we're now standing in front of a, a great piece of technology, actually, which is called uh, Galazium, I think that's right, Christopher, that's isn't
8: it? Yes, it's a mixture of gallery and museum, and it's a three-dimensional tactile uh, haptic interactive console. Okay.
1: Okay. So um, we'll talk about your company in a little while, but just yeah. describe... we on the screen we've got various museum artifacts but somebody's actually has their hand in a in a, a pocket it's below a the screen yeah. yeah
8: it's a lower chamber where you put your hand into, to hold uh, a handle which we've developed which has uh, force feedback haptic technology and what that drives is a yellow ball on the screen and that yellow ball represents the end of your fingertip so you can actually feel the interface, the floor we've developed with the blind and visually impaired to give a grooved interface which becomes your menu and file system. And um, at the back are three objects which you can select one of those from a collection.
1: And, and so uh, you're operating the actual walkthrough or the, the journey through the museum with the haptic and yes. the ball. But, but you can actually feel as well, can you?
8: Yes, what you, what you actually get is a sensation of connection with that object. An object gives you as much force back as you give it. So if it's a heavy object, you're going to not going to move it. These objects in museums you can't touch because they're behind glass. If you see them on the tablet or the, or the uh, computer, you can't touch them because it's a swipe, uh, a swipe action or a typing action. What this does is gives you a chance to feel the three-dimensional form of the object and get a sense of its material. If you tap objects, whether it's a plastic cup, a crystal glass, you're going to get different sounds from them, and those sounds connect you and your experience
1: to the object. So um, tell us how it actually came about. How did you? And what prompted you to go down this route of of, of haptics and interaction?
8: That's a very good question because I started as a sculptor and an artist uh, practicing in the Southwest. I moved to um, Crewe to do a teaching job and uh, I uh, came across a haptic digital CAD system. And that means basically you have a digital clay. And that is my route into it. I'm a, I'm a sculptor with clay and a clay modeler. But this digital system was lo- suddenly a three-dimensional Photoshop for me. It was, it was exciting. I was very lucky then to be employed by Sensible Technologies, the makers of this, to be able to go into design houses all around Europe to demonstrate it. Because I had no experience of computers, yet I could drive this machine because I'm an artist. I was then employed by National Museums Liverpool as a as a product development consultant which was an Aladdin's cave of sculptures and we could scan them and create new products but also look at interpretation, look at haptic technology and look at um, new ways of presenting them and making money from them. So when that finished I thought well somebody must be making a haptic console but no one was and having all that experience thinking, well, somebody's got to. So I knew a, a, a company in, based in Manchester called Vertalis and they could make CAD um, VR software and then bolt on a haptic element. And suddenly there was the opportunity to create
1: a haptic console. I mean, I think it's amazing. Um, I'm trying to think of an artifact that I'd love to pick up and feel and touch. and. Um, is it not the case where every uh, mummy in the Egyptian mummy has a scarab inside them, isn't it? Or, um... uh, they,
8: they are. They have all sorts of things wrapped up in their mummy yeah. uh, which all mean things as well. well. Yeah. And some of the mummies are very, very complex if you were to scan them. We've worked very closely with Manchester Museum and they also got funding from the Stavros Niarchos Foundation to give us an opportunity to do this. Right. Because we've gone really from paper to to design in a console that's ergonomically designed by Coventry Design Institute. And then looking uh, I've developed the interface with the animation, because the animation can be scripted and made into different languages as an international platform. Yeah. And a platform where museums can share and publish data and information and an experience so you can't get in a museum of touching objects. No, I mean,
1: uh, the screen's just come free, so um, shall, I, shall I have a go? Yes, sure. please
4: do.
1: So, um, we're, uh, I'm just sat down in front of the computer, so the haptic is in, I think it's here, yeah, I'm moving it around now.
8: That's it, so if you hold it between your thumb and your finger there, yeah. and then press that on top of like a mouse, and Yeah. you're driving the handle. Driving okay, so
1: I've now captured the item, it. No, and I'm moving the bowl right. around. Perfect. That's and uh, it's, it's a. a take your finger
8: off. Yeah. And then bring the ball and put it into the bowl. So move. No, take your finger off. No. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I've turned
1: it around. Hang on. But, uh, right. That's
8: it. That is, that's it. So just move the, the ball towards the object. You see the shadow meets it? Yeah. Now you should be able to feel that surface just by rolling gently side to side. The bowl will influence. So
1: I'm now feeling the inside of this it's a hippo bowl which is circa two seven five zero BC and um, I can actually feel inside and outside and I move the ball in and I, I've actually got I can feel it. I can actually feel the the, the ball, yeah. And I'm actually what inside got, the bowl, yeah. What
8: you've actually
1: got to do is let the bowl influence you.
8: Yeah. Okay. So, in other words, let it tell you the shape it is. Yeah. By, by relaxing enough information. It's rather like putting a, a paintbrush over the surface. Yeah, yeah, I can and feel you, that. And you can start to tune in to that actual feeling. And it's a, it, the opposite of gaming, Gaming where you hold a handle and I'm hit sure. something. This is a complete reverse of that. You let the bowl influence you.
1: Yeah, I, I can feel that, yeah. It's amazing. So, um, there's a range of um, other artifacts in here. I assume yeah, that... the. Yeah, the To the bowl and just tap it. Oh, yeah, so a bit harder. That's me tapping a 270 2750 BC hippo bowl. Nearly 5,000 years old, yes. And it makes a noise. Look at that. That's amazing. Well, um, where can we find more information about what we're doing? So, of what you're doing?
8: I've got uh, a website at uh, www.galaiseum.org where you can go and see what this program is about. And I've done the screens and shows you uh, the the basic idea, really. Um, But the next thing, I'm here at Innovate um, after seven years to try and get the next stage. This is an idea that's developed for this seven years. It's It's bringing haptics into the public domain but now there's an opportunity to create this haptic platform not just for, not just for um, uh, museums but for education, for product promotion, for education, but it also is more inclusive because we worked with the visually impaired, with Henshaw's Society for the Blind in Manchester who have been fabulous, but also for access. This digital system, we've been touching a a piece of um, uh, museum artefact that's in Manchester Museum's collection. We've got a piece from Yale in the States, a a 30 million year old killer pig fossil. Um, We've got a piece from uh, Belvedere in Austria and a piece from the British Museum. So you can be sitting here and experiencing museum pieces that you can't experience in their museum as if it's right in front of you.
1: And you're actually feeling, touching, tapping, engaging with that particular item. You're actually
8: connected to that object. And that's really the whole thing about uh, about it. If you think of the word museum, it's about muse. And really that object comes up and you muse, you think about it in many different ways. No, It's
1: amazing. Thank you so much for speaking to us. Really enjoyed that. Christopher, where can people get more information once more? www.galiseum.com Great. Thank you ever so much for joining us. Thank you. Well, we're standing next to a huge uh, HGV vehicle, LGV, I think they're called now. And I'm joined by Pauline Dawes from Somi Trailers, yeah?
9: That's correct. Nice okay. to meet you. Nice to
1: meet you. So um, describe what you've been on a, a huge journey for about 10, 7, 10 years. How, how did it start in terms of designing this trailer and how have you got it now to, to such an excellent design?
9: Well, first of all, thank you for that. Um, I was working in a company as a logistics director with a lot of people driving down the motorway one day. We were stuck in the traffic, looked either side and could see underneath the trailers and suddenly thought, why aren't we using that space underneath? Four million pounds, 10 years, 22 patents, and a second mortgage later, (laughs) we've now finished the trailer and we're delighted to bring it here to the show.
1: So um, this is a final, final design. I assume there were many, many prototypes before this.
9: Well, this is number eight. Numbers one to six were prototypes, but the last two have actually been production models. So this has been made elsewhere.
1: So describe to me, um, obviously we all know that between the tractor and the rear axles, there's this void or unused space in a trailer. So describe to me how you've actually used that and and assisted with loading and unloading.
9: Okay, what I realised was that we could carry a third extra if we utilise that space. And the way that we do it is we drop a deck down in the centre and then at the rear there's two decks and they're nested. The top deck lifts up and engages in some internal walls, and it goes forward like a capital H to form a second layer in the middle. So, if you can imagine, you've got eight pallets at the front, and then a double stack, each on a deck in the middle, and then ten pallets at the back.
1: So, um, obviously, uh, what, what effectively what you're doing is you load you load the front two thirds of the trailer. It then, using airbags, I think that's correct. It will drop the load into the void. You then put another load over the top of it
9: that's correct we slide across yeah. and that's what's very different from any of the trailers and the reason this is important is it saves about a hundred thousand pounds a year for every Somi trailer on the road and 150 tons of co2
1: because i mean basically for you're, you're getting Three journeys for the price of four, or would have been four, something like that, isn't it?
9: That that is exactly right. And if you can think in terms of traffic, if half the goods in the UK use SOMIS, and about three quarters could, you could take a line of traffic part round the M25, in a whole circle, off the road, every day, and still deliver all the goods.
1: Now, there are double-deck trailers around at the moment, aren't there, that that, that do that? But I assume that they, they use either hydraulic lift systems or other quite heavy technology is that right
9: and um, the thing about the UK or rather England Scotland and Wales is there is no law about the height that you can go to so these huge double-deck trailers that you see have just one deck inside and yes they they are big the reason our trailer is different is that we only go to four meters high so you can use existing trucks existing loading bays and it's available to use in the whole of Europe US and Asia this makes it a fantastic export product
1: now, um, innovation is always difficult, and I know you've been recognised. This is, uh, this is a, a great thing as well, is that um, through Innovate UK you Pauline uh, have been put forth for an award and received an award this year is that right
9: i'm very lucky i won the uk women in innovation award for manufacturing and materials this money has been amazing it's allowed me to go to the states we've had a fabulous response and they're coming across to see how we do the trailers uh, it's also enabled me to come for example to this show because it's quite expensive carrying uh, a truck and trailer backwards and forwards um, but we've got um, trials booked for different people and for example the head of technology at Ocado today has said they're very excited about the Somi trailer. It's wonderful to see other people enthusiastic about my baby which is actually now a teenager. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah that's right. Um, some of the other things obviously you're looking at overseas R&D and trying to engage there. How important has Innovate UK been to that for you and, and how important have the grants and the funding that's been available um, assisted you?
9: Um, massively. It would have been impossible otherwise. And it's not just about the money, it's about the advice. We're a very small company. For example, we won the IGD Supply Chain Excellence Award, and a small company with five people in it beat Asda, Nestle, and Mars in the final. Now, that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't had some good advice. And they've given me a mentor as well who's been wonderful. So I would say to anybody who's got any ideas, and especially you girls out there, just go for it. Take your idea, uh, go see some of the government people and just see how far you can get, because it is a great ride.
1: No, that's amazing. So what next for you and your company, what you're looking at other than exports and, and around the world? I mean, I assume you've got an eye on Brexit negotiations and where that, that issue will end up. Um, that's a concern for everybody, isn't it?
9: You can look at this two ways our trailer will be a lot cheaper.
1: (laughs) Very, very true. Yeah, that's true. Um, And also, it it may free up other markets too, you mightn't it?
9: Oh, absolutely. Um, This product goes beyond any legislation that uh, involves Brexit. If you want to take one in four Trucks and trailers off the, the roads globally. For example, in America, we take half a million trucks off the roads. To give you an idea of what that means, each household produces about five tonnes of CO2 a year. A truck, 450 tonnes. So, for say a thousand trucks off the road, that's the equivalent of 900,000 houses worth of CO2. And so that's just 1,000 trucks. So, it, it's got a big impact all around the world.
1: Well it's been great to speak to you. Um SOMI trailers uh, sounds is a fantastic design. I wish you all the best for the future. Just tell us where we can get more information.
9: Well if you look at the web uh somitrailers.com to remember the name, it's same outside, more inside.
1: Oh, brilliant. Lovely to speak to you, Pauline, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the show.
0: So there you have it. Um, there's some really interesting things happening in the UK at the moment and uh, that's just a little sample at Innovate UK at uh, NEC Birmingham. Um, that was this week's special. Uh, we're back to the usual format next week and don't forget you can catch up on all our hundreds of podcasts on our website which is Tech techtalkshow.com Dot go dot UK. and if you want to have a little chat with us why not uh, why not go on to twitter and we're on at tech talk show uk we'd love to hear from you and uh, look forward to speaking with you next week bye now